All right, welcome to the Tuesday live stream. Uh, I'm Mike Winger, and I'm a pastor who does online content on YouTube, and you probably know that stuff already. So, hi, uh, good to be with you guys today. I don't have much of an agenda as far as what I want to share already, what I've already prepared. Mostly, we're going to be going to your content, uh, the things that you want to see. So, first, let me dig into this. Uh, before, by the way, you can start loading your questions. You know, put a queue in front of your question so we know it's a question. Don't tag me in it. That won't help because I have mods who are actually grabbing your questions and giving them to me so that I can then answer your questions as many as possible during the live stream. Here we go. All right, uh, sloppy introduction, but <laughs> that's what happens when I get distracted. Um, what I wanna do before we do anything else with today's live stream, I'd like to talk to you for one second about Jesus teaching monogamy. Believe it or not, there are actually people out there suggesting that the Bible supports polygamy, that it's an ongoing practice that we should engage in, and I'm not just talking about Mormon theology, which does still teach that you should engage in polygamy, uh, just they do spiritual polygamy instead of regular regular old polygamy. They have a different version of it now, but they're pushing, many within the church even pushing for more of that regular old polygamy stuff. But here's the verse I'd like to take you to as a way of kind of getting us going and getting our biblical juices flowing, you know, getting ourselves thinking about scripture as we're getting ready to take your guys' questions. Um, now in Matthew 19 verse 9, Jesus talks about uh, marriage and he talks about adultery. And he says something that is often lost on a modern audience because it does have bearing on the issue of polygamy, which was something that was going on even at the time. It wasn't super common. Usually only the rich can afford to do it back then, but it was something that did happen. And so here in Matthew 19, 9, it says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now I'm preparing a, a future video on the topic of divorce and remarriage, and I'm not going to be dealing with polygamy. I'm going to focus on divorce and remarriage in general. This, though, I wanted to mention. He says that if the man, what, marries another, he commits adultery. So Jesus is, in effect, saying, hey, your unjustified divorce, it doesn't, it doesn't effectively count in the eyes of God. And then when you marry another, you've committed adultery. But if polygamy is true, then a man can marry another whenever he wants. Whenever he wants. And so this would have been a, a shock to the people of the time. I mean, it would have surprised Jesus' original audience to be like, wait a minute, a guy... A guy commits adultery if he marries a, a, a second woman, even after a, an illegitimate divorce, they would have been blown away because they thought within a marriage, he could already go and marry a different woman. And Jesus said this, and it's recorded in more than one place. So let's look at Mark chapter 10, verses 11 and 12, where Jesus says, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So then this idea of the sacredness of marriage, the importance of marriage, which is very much lost on our society as well. It was lost at the time. But this is also getting at the issue of polygamy. Because yes, not only should you not get divorced in these unjustified reasons, but you marry another, you commit adultery. And if that's true after an unjustified divorce, then it's certainly true in an existing marriage. Jesus taught against polygamy. Jesus taught, taught monogamy because he connected the idea of marriage to Genesis and to one man, one woman being joined with one marriage for one life, that that was his idea of what marriage was. It was meant to be this ongoing, long-lasting thing. That was the idea behind marriage in the first place. Now, um, AJ, if for my mod, AJ, when you're listening, send me those questions as soon as you have a couple at least to send me over. But let me take you to a couple other passages that might bear in on this. First Timothy 3.2. Let's see. 
these are qualifications for someone who wants to be an overseer or like in what you'd think of as a pastoral role. It says, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. He's got to be the husband of one wife. Now, some would say, well, that means he couldn't have been divorced and remarried or he couldn't have had his wife die and then he marries a second. No, that's not really what it's being talked about here. It's referring to polygamy here. I have a longer study. Maybe one day I'll get into on this topic. But it seems to be referring to polygamy specifically. He, he's, you can still be Christian. Okay? You, you, you're a polygamist and you get, you get saved. You're still a believer. You're not unsaved as a result of this thing that's going on in your life. But you're disqualified as a leader because it's against God's ideal for our lives. 1 Timothy 3.12 extends this to deacons, which is like a lesser servant role. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their own children and their own households well. Now, he's, I don't think he's here saying that to serve as a deacon, you have to be married as opposed to single. Because elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 7, he lauds the idea of staying single to serve the Lord. He says you can serve the Lord in greater ways because you're uncommitted un to a, a wife or husband and children. So singleness is considered to enable you to serve the Lord more, not less. So why would being married to one wife count as a requirement for serving as a deacon, the, a lower role in ministry? Well, it wouldn't. It's referring to polygamy. So another one is in Titus, Titus 1.6. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, again, speaking of elders or uh, overseers or bishops, these are all the same thing in the New Testament, elder, overseer, and bishop. They refer to what you would think of now as a pastor, the pastor role. That's the more common word we use for it. So he has to be, again, the husband of one wife. And then there's 1 Corinthians 7 too. One more. One more for you. But because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. By definition, polygamy means a woman doesn't have her own husband. Not really, not exclusively, not in the way that a wife or a husband has his own wife. But rather... Both sides, polygamy is wrong, right? The, the, the husband gets his wife. The wife gets her husband. They have them. The two become one. It's not meant to be three or four or five becoming one. No, it doesn't work that way. Then it goes on and even make it more clear, I think, in verse four, the, hus- the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. This is speaking about in the, in the it's speaking about sex. It's about the sexual relationship in a marriage that... The, uh, the woman has a claim over the man in sexual exclusivity, and the man has that claim. Notice how Paul puts it both ways. In a polygamous culture, it would, you would say the husband has a claim over the wife, but you wouldn't say the wife has claim over the husband. But that's exactly what it says here because it's not polygamy. So I, I thought I'd share that with you guys. I think that right now um, there's a number of... Uh, there is any number of unending weird teachings and theology you can access online. The result of having... Content, the, the benefit, right? You have content like mine that can get out there fast and easy and it can be available for totally for free to minister to other people. But the downside, the downside is that you've got to deal with everybody being able to put anything they want out there. Anybody who can like talk fast and sound confident can get their theology at least into somebody's hands, even if it's weird and wacky. And so, uh, but hey, Good theology has to exist, if for no other reason than because bad theology exists. And so I hope to, pre- to present you guys with some good theology. Uh, welcome again to the Tuesday live stream. I'm doing Q&A right now. I'm going to segue into your guys' questions. I'm going to answer as many questions as I can. And hopefully it's a benefit to you. I don't know everything. And I'm not going to pretend to know things I don't know. Um, this isn't about me looking like I know stuff. It's more about me 
just trying to help you if I have the ability, depending on what your questions are. I have not read these ahead of time. They're just coming in right now live. So Shelby Sprightly says, hi, Mike. Because 1 Timothy 2.12 is still applicable today, what does that mean for 1 Timothy 2.15 and 1 Corinthians 11.6? What what would the modern application be? Um, And are you still selling Bible thinker mugs? Well, the second question is going to be a lot easier than the first one. you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna pass on this question. First Timothy two twelve. Make sure it's, it's what I'm thinking of. Yeah. So when it comes to the the question about women's role in in church, I'm a I'm gonna give you guys a quick summary. I'm a complementarian, which means that I I think that there are different roles for men and women in the church. I think that that highest leadership role is reserved for men, and I think that's by God's design. I don't think it's sexist. Our culture is gonna think it's sexist, and literally, no matter what I say. After saying what I just said, I'm 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 already um, ignored and and cast off into outer darkness, uh, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. As far as our culture is concerned, but the question I have isn't what our culture thinks. Uh, the question I have is, is what does Scripture actually teach about this issue? I do think that the pastoral role, uh, the traditional pastoral role, we, we call everybody pastor now, at least in some cultures and some churches everyone's a pastor like you're a pastor and what you do is you do music for children and that's all you do but you're called a pastor okay well if we're going to make that the pastoral role then i don't know that i can deny it to women if it's going to be such a flexible role but if we're going to talk about like that sort of pastoral role of preaching and teaching the word of god with authority and having like a governing type role in the in the local body in the local fellowship i think that belongs specifically to men and not all men only certain men whom god has called and appointed for that purpose so it's an exclusive thing. Yeah, it's, it's not open for everybody. I do think that. But where I struggle a lot is in trying to figure out how to apply this into the wide variety of situations we find ourselves today. So a woman has a, a ministry where she teaches, in what, in, which is good. I think that's healthy. I don't think women can't teach anything. <laughs> that would be really unfortunate. Um, but, but in what environments and, and with what sort of rules does that take place and i don't really know the right answer in all those questions so i'm so i'm afraid to venture in and try to answer your question shelby because i think what if i get it wrong in my application the principles there but in the, the application of it i'm not entirely sure how to apply it in all the variety of life today so i'm not going to try and dig in and give you perfect clarity because yeah I will say this, if, if you're a, a lady watching this and you're thinking, I really want to serve the Lord. I think I have a gift in communicating. I think I understand theology and stuff really well. Uh, my encouragement is this. Read the, the text of scripture. Study it on your own. Give real, real thought to this. And don't just grab anybody's teaching that you go, thank you, that allows me to do what I want. Now, most of you aren't going to want to do that anyways. I don't think that that's your heart. I think you care about the word of God. So what I'm saying is you are accountable to scripture and you should let scripture guide and direct your choices that doesn't mean you have no ministry it means you need to be thoughtful about how you engage in it now um sorry i can't be of more help now as far as bible thinker mugs goes there are more mugs coming out i have some in actually in the other room i have some i could show them to you now but i forgot forgot about it didn't bring them in here but i'll let you guys know more more and different we have like four or five new designs for bible thinker mugs and you're welcome to buy them but i'm going to tell you guys ahead of time uh i talked to Brent Zockel. He's the guy who makes the mugs. And I told him to to lower the price of the mugs and, and not to send me any of the money that comes from the mugs. And the reason for it is this. If you want to donate to my ministry, you can just do it through the, through the website, BibleThinker.org. 
the mugs are pretty expensive because they're handmade, they're not made in a factory, and the shipping's are expensive because they're heavy and they have to be shipped carefully and all that. So I just thought, let's just lower the price. If people want a mug, they can get one. So the price will be a little bit less, but I was only making like five bucks each. Um, and so it's not real significant. Uh, that being said, next Tuesday, I will show you guys the new mugs. How's that sound? Maybe I'll post some videos or some photos up on uh, on the, uh, the YouTube uh, community channel or community page, sorry, on my YouTube channel. Ryan Leach has a question. Uh, my wife and I love your ministry. Thank you. Uh, you're welcome. Uh, my wife asks about Matthew 27, 46. What does Jesus mean by why have you forsaken me? All right. This is, boy, this is a verse um, that I think, I think hits us hard when we first, 27, 46, when we first encounter it. And Jesus in the context for everybody to just be up to speed here, he's on the cross and he's dying and he's suffering He's being given over to death. And this is in the will of God. It's like in God's desiring will that Jesus will die on the cross. And so here he is. And the disciples are confused and they're confounded and they don't know what's going on. They thought Jesus would never die, right? When when Jesus, he knew this was going to happen when he had announced it earlier on. He, he told the disciples, I'm going to be uh, betrayed and suffer and be rejected and I'll die and then rise again. And Peter said, no, Lord. And he, he said, God forbid, effectively had that, that connotation. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, because this is so important that I die. Well, here he is. He's on the cross. The disciples still don't understand it. And they hear Jesus cry out on the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is translated for us here in Matthew. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? So <clears throat> the question is, wait, wait a minute. I thought Jesus was dying according to God's will. Why is he saying that he was forsaken? And I'm going to offer two, I think, very important answers to this question. One, we should ask, what does it mean forsaken? What does that mean forsaken? Some people here will say that Jesus, uh, the Father and the Son, like separated. That, that they became like almost like two different beings. Um, the Trinity was like broken while they're on the cross because the Father like turned his back on the Son. Um, and that itself is a metaphor. So what do you mean by that? Right? Well, some people think it means they actually separated. That is definitely not the case. Like that would violate the very concept of the Trinity. It would violate what the Bible teaches about who God is. The Father's in the Son. The Son is in the Father. This is like the part of their very nature. Jesus is God. The Father is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Yet there's only one God, three persons, one being. Well, if you split them up, you've violated the very nature of who God is. So good news. There's no need to do that because all you've got is the one word forsaken. You don't have my God, my God, why have you ontologically separated your essence from me? Like you don't have that phrase. So we don't have to assume that it has to do with the very nature of who Jesus is. So that's one, one answer. That's what it's not. In context, it is the experience of being on the cross, being given over to a terrible suffering and death. That is the forsaken. And this relates to Psalm 22, which is what Jesus was quoting while he was on the cross. See, he's quoting Psalm 22, and to the Jewish mind, they know this psalm, and they, when they hear, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They're immediately loading into their mind, because they'd memorized lots of scripture and were trafficked in it constantly. So they're immediately loading in their minds Psalm 22. And in Psalm 22, we find the answer. What does it mean, why have you forsaken me? Well, Psalm 22 is all about the death and then the resurrection of Christ and then what that resurrection will accomplish. So I'm going to do a quick survey. 
Let's plow through Psalm 22 at lightning speed, and I'll offer a few comments here and there to help us understand the context. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry, day, day, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but find no rest. So, so Psalms, like, a, like Psalm 22, like a lot of other Psalms, it starts with like a summary of how things are going right now. But immediately in verse 3, uh, Psalm 22, the, the author in, who's really speaking messianically or speaking what Jesus is going to go through, he's talking about Jesus. What happens next is he corrects a misunderstanding, a misperception. My cat is got energy right now. In um, verse 3, says, Yet you are holy and thrown in the praises of Israel. Okay, so the first thing in verse 3 we see is there's an affirmation. Hey, yeah, I'm forsaken, but this is not because God has failed. It's not because of moral flaws in God. There's a question, why am I forsaken? But there's an affirmation, yet God is still holy. So there's no wrong doing on the side of God in the forsaking of the person in Psalm 22. In, in you, our fathers trusted, they trusted you, and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. And here's a contrast. Verses 4 and 5 say, look, Israel, they trusted and they were helped. But it's not happening for the person in Psalm 22, ultimately Jesus. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me and they, uh, they make mouths at me. They wag their heads. These are uh, ancient Near Eastern or even modern Near Eastern uh, ways of mocking people. You know, you might flip someone the bird in you know, modern times in Western culture, but in Eastern culture, you might stick your tongue out and wag it around or do something like that. There's just different ways of mocking people. So he's scorned. Uh, that, that phrase, I'm a worm and no man, that's a really interesting word. It's a toloth worm, which is, there's a whole study on that that you can do. But basically the worm seems to almost exist as a metaphor for Jesus. It climbs up on a tree and attaches itself to the tree. It looks more like an insect, but it's technically a worm. It attaches itself to the tree, and then there it dies. And its, its uh, offspring eat the mother and then leave a red stain upon the tree because the, the blood of the worm is crimson red. And the offspring go off, and then it, it oxidizes and turns white. And so it gets attached to a tree to give life to its offspring. It dies a bloody death, but it somehow the blood turns white. There's like all these pictures of uh, the, the one who... Uh, made it so that though our sins were as scarlet, they were, then we were white as snow. Then it goes on. Um, all who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Matthew actually records them actually quoting this to Jesus, mocking him with these same concepts. That you are he who took me from the womb, you made me trust, uh, trust you at my mother's breasts, for on you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you've been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help me. So there's this, I'm, I'm brought down to this like horrible situation, and I'm depending on God's deliverance. And I don't deserve this, but I'm suffering. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan. These are animals that refer to types of people. So bulls of Bashan would be people in strength and authority, like Pilate, and the Jewish Sanhedrin, and those who, who uh, are surrounding around him to kill him. They open, their, they open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. And this describes a crucifixion. Uh, literally, he was pierced and he was poured out like water. His bones were out of joint because a cross literally pulls your bones out of joint physically. It, the arms get separated. 
My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast, which is probably what Jesus died from was heart failure. My strength is dried up like a pot's herd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You've laid me in the dust of death. This describes dehydration. My strength is dried up. My tongue sticks to my jaws like when you're dehydrated and dust of death refers to the fact that this is not only a a suffering thing, it's a dying thing. He's dying. For dogs encompass me and and a company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and feet. And could it be more clearly about the cross at this point? And there's a debate on whether it should really say they pierce my hands and my feet. I've dealt with that in my Psalm 22 video. You're welcome to look that, look that up. And it should say my, they pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. These, again, are things that happened to Jesus on the cross. And this type of thing did happen. We've confirmed in Roman executions. They did take the clothing, at least up until the time after the time of Jesus. They would... Uh, the guards would take the clothing of the crucifixion victims. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You've rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Okay, the very end there in verse 21, you rescued me. This now in context of your question, why was Jesus saying, why have you forsaken me? He ties it to Psalm 22. And in the end of Psalm 22, there's a rescue. There's a deliverance. And Jesus was, in fact, delivered. He was brought back from the dead. So his forsaking wasn't complete. It wasn't a separation of the Father and the Son. It was the giving of the Son over to the cross. In that sense, he was forsaken. He was given over to that to suffer that death for us. But then he was restored. And in verse 22, I'll tell your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him all you offspring of Israel, for he's not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts, what? Live forever. So there's this connotation of eternal life having some sort of result. They'll eat and be satisfied, which could be referenced to like the idea of, of this being the Passover sacrifice, Christ being our, our communion now. We partake of Christ. We eat. We're satisfied. We live forever. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And this is a prophecy that Gentiles, a bunch of Gentiles are going to get saved as a result of, of Psalm 22. All the families of the nation shall worship before you. To, to me, this is one of the most amazing prophecies about Jesus. It's not just that he would die and rise. It's the effect it would have on the world. Jesus, this, this you know, Jew from the first century has had this massive worldwide impact. He's affected history more than any human ever in the history of humanity. He has caused Gentiles from around the world to worship the God of Israel. Just like Psalm 22 says. For King Kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship, bow before him, or before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Now this is how Jesus is the Lord of the living and the dead. Those who will die will stand before Jesus as their judge. I mean, this is the theology of the New Testament embedded in the prophecy of the old. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to... The coming generation, they shall come proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. It's just the big it of Psalm 22, fulfilled by Jesus. I think that's pretty powerful stuff. Um, Now, let's see. 
That's not bad for the second question. <laughs> JC has a question. What's your advice to a husband that hasn't had intimacy with a wife in over 10 years? And she pretty much refuses counseling, yet divorce is not, a, uh, not in future, so there is hope. Um, JC, my, my, my encouragement would be to sit down and for that husband to get counseling on his own. If his wife won't go, then he can go. And one of the toughest things in marriage is learning to look at your own issues even in spite of your spouse's issues so that you you change your behavior in positive ways even if they're not changing theirs and that is one of the toughest things in marriage you know and that in dealing with offenses that you you feel offended but and, and they don't think they've offended you and you're still trying to forgive them for that these are the kind of complicated dying to self things that have to go on my advice to that husband would be um, that the intimacy is a symptom it's not the problem and get counseling and it's been over 10 years. Maybe there's, maybe you need, and this would be the hard part of the counseling. Maybe you need to stop and look at your own behavior and stop paying attention to hers for a while and just really work on yourself. And your goal can't just be, I need intimacy. That's important. And you should have that in your marriage, but your goal has to be, I need to honor the Lord in all that I do in this marriage, in all that I do, in the way that I look at my wife, in the way that I respond to her, in the way I make demands, the way that I um, react to the different situations going on, to walk in great love. I do have a video on how to be a godly husband that's based not upon my experience and my great wisdom, but based upon the teaching of scripture on being a husband. JC, I'd recommend that for that guy to, to, to look up my how to be a husband video and uh, consider going through that. So I'm glad there's still hope. I think the best thing you can do is ignore everything she's doing wrong for a season and just focus on himself being right with God and loving her. Pyrotechnic one says, Hey Mike, what's your view on the letters to the churches in revelation being prophecy? Why and why not? I was told that they were, uh, that they were times in the church age. Yeah. You know, I, I'd heard that when I was younger, that each of the seven letters to the seven churches represents different like epochs or seasons of time. And initially it sounds really compelling, right? Because as you read through the different letters individually, you go, wow, that that really does relate to like a season in church history. And then you look at the next one. Yeah, that relates to another season. But I have two problems with it uh, and why I don't lean heavily on that. I, I think it's interesting. I'm interested to hear more about it, but I don't lean on it at all. And one of them is this. The letters seem to lose their validity the further down you go. So at first, first few letters, first three letters, maybe four letters, you're like, yeah, that's legit. Oh, yeah, that sounds about right. But then as you get to letters five, six, and seven, you start going, ah, I don't really see how that parallels church history very well. Uh, the other, and I'll actually have a third problem. <laughs> the second problem, though, is this. We are, some, we are sometimes oversimplifying, actually, church history. We look, you look at the world today, it's actually very complicated, and church history is also very complicated. And individuals, they don't fit neatly. And church history doesn't fit neatly into these little, these little um, summaries that we sometimes give it. And so for that reason, the actual, what you're thinking about the history itself might be a little bit oversimplified, too simplistic, which is why it's made easy to fit this letter or that letter, because it's maybe too simplistic. And then the last reason I'll give is this, is that the where you... Um, when you look at these seven sort of epochs, supposedly, of church history, the problem is you're looking at it from today. Whereas, like, 
a thousand years ago, somebody would have looked at it and they would have had to fit all seven within the first thousand years of the church. Well, now it's 2000 years. So we have to fit all seven within the first 2000 years of the church. Well, what if the Lord tarries another 500 years? Well, now where are we putting letter four and letter six and letter seven? We're sort of fitting it to our timeline and we don't really know what Jesus's timeline is for his return. That's my final issue I have with that. So I'm very hesitant to do that. As you read the letters, they don't obviously come off as prophetic about times and, and seasons. They, if anything, they might be typological about people's lives and the compromises they make in their walk with Jesus. Uh, local congregations might fall into any one of those letters at any time, and then they can pl- apply it to themselves better, and that, that's kind of what I would focus on. Hmm, let's see here. David Preston says, thoughts on marrying outside of Christ- Christian faith, also sex before marriage. Um, well, there's really, there shouldn't be any debate on this, the second issue, or the first issue, really. Uh, sex outside of marriage, this was viewed as a sinful thing in, uh, in, the, in the scriptures. It's viewed as a sinful thing by the culture of Jesus. Um, it's just assumed that this thing is, is bad. In fact, I'll take you to one text that might help us understand it a little bit better if you're wavering on this for some reason. Um, Paul was talking about this issue and in Corinth, one of the issues they had in Corinth when he wrote them the Corinthians letter, the first Corinthians, he, they, they had, it seems they had this policy going on in their heads where they thought it was somehow godly for married couples to not be together sexually, to hold, withhold each other, that it was somehow honoring to God. And so that was one of the issues he's dealing with. He also talks about marriage, divorce, and some other issues in first Corinthians seven. But let's read through here and see how it applies to the issue of sex before marriage, because I think it very much does. It says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, here's a debate. <laughs> this might actually not be something Paul taught. This might be something that the Corinthians were saying. It's good. It's a, it's a morally good thing for people to just simply abstain. No sexual relations. He's going to counteract that. He seems to agree with it in some contexts, but it's not a general rule of life. So he counteracts it in verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each have her own husband. Get this. This is important. Interesting that I just read this verse earlier too. If, if, the, if, the, if the problem is people are tempted to sin sexually and the solution is get married, what does that say about the idea of have sex without getting married? That is simply defined by Paul as sexual immorality. Hey, don't do it. Don't step into that road. Don't take one foot down that path. That is sexual immorality, which is a catch-all phrase for all kinds of sin. So there's uh, one verse for you to help support the idea. If, if sex before marriage was okay, verse 2 is totally unnecessary. Why, why do you have to get married to avoid sexual immorality? Just go and have consensual sex and that's okay. I also think that we understand this is wrong naturally and it's only the gross, sick perversion of our culture and the spread of pornography and sexual, not just pornography, but, but constant examples of ungodly sexual behaviors throughout all the media that we consume. We see it on commercials. We see it in, in movies and TV shows. And, and it's normalized and it's considered positive. You might even catch yourself rooting for a couple to get together. And then they have sex outside of marriage in a movie. But you're somehow encouraged. The, the framing of the film is so that you might want them to do this. So that you might think it's good. And um, that is the ungodly sexual immorality of our culture that some people are not trying to force onto the text of scripture. Um, your other question was um, thoughts on marrying outside the Christian faith. Um, 
well, scripture says not to be unequally yoked. And that is definitely in the context of marriage. Uh, and that is speaking about a believer with an unbeliever. But let's, let me find this here. If the believer partner separates, there is a specific verse in 1 Corinthians 7 that speaks on this. Um, let me just, let me look it up here. So in the verse I'm going to share with you, here we go. First Corinthians seven thirty nine. Um, it's about a, a, a wife, um, and her husband dies and then she is free to get remarried. She has permission to get remarried, but notice the, the restriction. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. And that phrase, only in the Lord, unless you just really want to marry an unbeliever, you're going to, it should be obvious to you that this is talking about only marrying another believer, only marrying another Christian. Um, in fact, it just dealt with the issues in 1 Corinthians 7, the struggles people go through when people uh, marry non-believers, or rather they are married to non-believers. He doesn't talk about getting married, but but probably, probably they were already married then they got saved and the spouse is not walking with the Lord and it creates a lot of problems. So I think scripture is really clear on that. Really clear. Shouldn't, shouldn't be any debate. Um, Kenny Kata says, or Coda says, um, how do we distinguish between feeling guilt and feeling shame after sin? Well, Kenny, it might be uh, that you have sort of your own understanding of feeling guilt and feeling shame. To me, feeling guilt and feeling shame are are very similar kinds of things. Um, so I, I don't know what you mean when you say feeling guilt. Maybe when you say feeling shame, you mean I'm not guilty, but I still feel bad. I'm not really sure about the question. How do we distinguish between feeling guilt and feeling shame after sin? Probably should feel both of those after sin. All I can suggest is you you run to the cross. You remind yourself of the mercy and the grace that you meet uh, that, that it meets you there, that you can come boldly to the throne of grace, that you may find grace to help in time of need, that this is something you get from the Lord in your times of need. You remind yourself that that salvation, that forgiveness was purchased by Jesus on the cross. There's nothing you do to earn it. It's all about just getting that heart that had strayed from God, getting that heart back in line with God and then receiving his grace. But healthy guilt and shame, that's appropriate. There is an unhealthy guilt and shame, and that is when the guilt and shame trails with you long after you've repented and you've put your trust in, in, the, in the cross of Christ over that same sin issue, that you still feel the guilt, still feel the shame as though it's not resolved. And here you need your conscience, your awareness of the guilt of your sin to be cleansed by the blood of Christ. I mean, he paid for you. You're, you're not forgiven because you never mess up again. You're not forgiven because you've had a week of really good behavior. You're forgiven because of the cross. And that is something you've got to remind yourself of. Uh, my own life became much more pleasant when I realized that about the cross. First last says, when Jesus became incarnate, he was not omniscient while on earth. After his resurrection and ascension, he is omniscient or omnipresent. Scripture references, please, if possible. Um, I would actually disagree with that first last. I would say that while he was on earth, there were things he knew that he could not have known through natural human means. And there were things that he didn't know, like the day or the hour, but that doesn't mean that he didn't know stuff the whole time. We're not given in scripture a blueprint of everything 
Jesus did and didn't know. We're just given times where like he sees Nathaniel. Nathaniel's one of the disciples who was far off, physically impossible to see him. Says, Jesus says, I saw you while you were sitting there under the uh, fig tree, was it? Yeah, I think it was a fig tree. Um, he says, hey, I saw you there under the fig tree. And it was not physically possible for him to see him there. Uh, it, scripture tells us Jesus knew what was in the heart of man. Well, this is something that only man knows or God. Like man or God know what's in the heart of man. You know, God's spirit searches all of us. He knows all of our hearts. Well, Jesus somehow knew all that. So there were things that Jesus didn't didn't know. I think he voluntarily gave up access to knowledge while he was walking uh, in that physical uh, time in Philippians. It says he, he set aside... Um, actually, let's look at the passage. It's a pretty important uh, Christological passage. It says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing through selfish am- from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he goes on to talk about the part I wanted to get to. Have, having, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. So Jesus, while he's on the earth, he does empty himself. He takes the form of a servant. What does it mean, emptied himself? That's the big, the, the big question, right? But it does have to do with some sense in which he humbled himself. He brought himself low in order that he might live and serve as a lowly human being, that he might stand as a representative for all human beings. But this, while he always maintains having the flesh, he now exists in a glorified body. So it says being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So there's this like, he came down with that humility, he was exalted. So here's where people would say, whatever limitations Jesus seemed to have voluntarily accessing his omniscience, that's how I would put it. Still had it, but he was not accessing it at all times. Just like I know things and I can't always think about those things. Sometimes you can't, you're like, I know this, but I can't access it right now. Might have been something like that. Um, And yet those limitations may well be gone now that he is in his exalted state. All right, let's go to another question. Susanna L. says, some claim that you only have to forgive someone if they repent. What is your opinion of this? I've always had the understanding that we're supposed to forgive even if they don't repent. Um... I would say it's complicated. (laughs) I've given some thought to this, Susanna, and my view is this, um, that it depends on what you mean by the word forgive. So if I take forgive to mean uh, on my heart, I will let go of the need or desire to punish that person. Um, I will yield and give, give away that sort of want for vengeance or pain or suffering for the other individual then you need to forgive everybody in that in that perspective you give you give that away to everybody without qualification but if by forgive you mean restore the relationship like enter into like a a restored and fixed relationship with the person who hurt you i don't think that you have to do that with everybody i think that's reserved for those who at least in the case of extreme grievances for those who repent i think that that's specifically for those who repent and i think that scripture 
seems to confirm this. It's kind of how God forgives us, right? On the cross, Jesus pays for all of our sin. The heart of God is like, I've dealt with all your sin. But unless they will come with a repentant attitude, they're not going to receive the forgiveness that he purchased for them on the cross that he offers to them freely. So forgiveness on one side, in my heart, is offered to everyone, but it's not received until they come and they can have that restoration. Or I go to them and seek that restoration. I think that that's the simplified or shorter explanation of this. Isabella Broadbent has a question. How does God respond to the prayers of and for an unbeliever? Prayers of and for an unbeliever. I mean, I think God responds to prayers for them the same way he responds to prayers for anybody. He He responds according to his will, but he also is is listening and desiring for us to pray and seek him. And we do have an influence on things that happen. Uh, I think we have a real influence. So prayer for an unbeliever in that sense, for an unbeliever, I think has no difference there. You're praying for them. Lord, please open their heart. Please show them the truth. Please help them encounter people to share the gospel with them. Help them realize their need for Jesus. Um, Please, God, work in their lives to bring them to you. Uh, or even, Lord, I pray for people, Lord, don't let them suffer and die while they're in this rebellion. Let them live long enough to have a chance to repent, you know, of what's going on. I've prayed that, those things. And the prayers of an unbeliever, does God respond to them? I don't have any belief that God is strictly in, unable to respond to the prayers of an unbeliever. Why can't God answer them? I, I don't see why he, why he can't. Like, I don't see any biblical reason to have a rule that God will not answer the prayers of someone who's not a believer, even if they're praying for something like healing or blessings. And there may be a case for this in Jesus's healings, because sometimes he heals people, like he heals a man, a man who's paralyzed, and then the guy gets up and he's leaving, and Jesus tells him, sin no more, lest something worse come upon you. What is the implication when he has to tell someone he just healed, sin no more? It's that they were unrepentant, and that they were healed even even though they were still in this rebellious state and Jesus is like I've healed you but don't go back into those things now there needs to be this time of repentance so I think God sometimes answers the prayers of an unbeliever just to show them that he's real not that he's going to do that every time in every scenario but at least sometimes on the other hand there are those who want to use God to get out of everything they're going to continue to do evil and God is their get out of jail free card I'm going to keep living the life the way I want to live it And I'm just praying, God, get me out of this. Pay my rent. Lord, help me with the situation. And the Lord knows the heart and he'll respond in real life to what's really going on according to his will. Uh, Denise says, Mike, can you please research the doctrine and dive deep into Mosaic teachings? They are a well-known church based in L.A. that are super popular in the Christian community and no one has made any videos. You know, I don't really know much about Mosaic and I I live in L.A., uh, so I'm not really sure. <laughs> I'll I'll consider it, Denise. Uh, my plate is very full right now, so I'm not taking on anything new at the moment. But I appreciate the request, and if a bunch more people request it, I'll push it to the top because uh, that'll show me that there's a big need for it. Sorry, I don't have more for you. Thomas Middlebrook says, since a previous Q and A, you noted that the sin of Christians is paid for. How is how is then? that some in your denomination preach you can lose your salvation can it become unpaid um well this is one of those things where i go wait some in my denomination well i'm not going to answer for anybody else who's i mean calvary chapels in a sense were kind of like a denomination 
in other senses we're not because we don't have the same types of characteristics that are typical for denominations doesn't mean we're better than them I'm just categorically I don't know if it really fits that title exactly but the um, we're just too decentralized to call it a denomination in my opinion um, but yeah let, let's say this like are we saying if, if, a, if a believer loses their salvation does that mean that Jesus didn't pay for their sins I would say well only if you're um, you have a Calvinistic view of the extent of the atonement if you think that when Jesus died he paid for only the sins of the saved then you would have to say that someone losing their salvation means Jesus like paid for your sin and then he, he, he unpaid for the sins and that would be really rough you wouldn't be able to do that Maybe one of the reasons why, you know, Calvinists would hold to the perseverance of the saints. But if you don't have that view of the atonement, if you think that Jesus paid for all sins and the application of his blood, not the extent of the atonement, but the application of the atonement, that that is upon only those who receive Christ, then it doesn't become a problem, at least in that regard. I'm not saying that's my view. I'm just trying to answer your question. Thomas Middlebrook, since, uh, oh, that was, that was Thomas. All right, Clarissa Reiter, Reiter says, Hi, Pastor Mike. Um, how would you describe the sovereignty of God to someone who is new to the faith or doesn't understand the concept well? Asking for a friend, thank you for your content. All right, how would we explain the sovereignty of God? Well, I think that um, to me, the sovereignty of God is an incredible encouragement and it constantly lifts my spirits. To know that God is in control. Because first you have the character of God. That God is good. Right? That God is good. Then you have the wisdom of God and the knowledge of God. That he knows all things. All things past, present, future. He knows all things. And then you have the sovereignty of God. That God is in control. And that then no matter what is going on around me. I can trust in the good, wise, sovereign God. Who is working through all that's going on. Like Romans 8.28 tells us. That God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so if I'm trusting in God's word, I, I have this incredible comfort in the midst of any hardship or circumstance. Lord, this thing had to get by your throne for it to happen. That doesn't mean that the thing is good, but it does mean that what you're doing overall in life and in the world, and even including the scenario, what you're doing is good. And you're bringing it towards good. Uh, you're using it for good. And so in that, I, I find a lot of encouragement and comfort. But I would caution someone who's just learning about the sovereignty of God, at least in my view. I'm not a, I'm not a Calvinist in this view. I, I don't think, and not all Calvinists would have this view, but I don't believe in like exhaustive divine determinism or the idea that God is like causing every single thing to happen. You know, he's controlling every little thing as though we're all just sort of robots playing out a script that we have no actual uh, choices in and that that is not my view at all and i don't think sovereignty means that because sovereignty is not the same as control in in minutiae that's not the same thing sovereignty means god is ultimately in control of all things or the flow of all things and he, he can stop or allow allow but not necessarily cause everything that happens and he's going to use it for his glory but i would just caution people not to go too far with it into thinking that they're going to have to actually um, think that everything that happens, you know, I got this disease, God must have caused it directly. Well, no, we see in the book of Job that life is much more complicated than that. 
that Job is attacked, God allows it in his sovereignty, but it's Satan who does the attacking. It's Satan who comes against Job and tries to destroy his life. God uses it for his glory because he's sovereign and he uses it for positive benefits in the world, even though it was incredible suffering for Job. I think Job can take comfort in God's sovereignty because he knows even though he has an enemy who's trying to destroy his life, he has a sovereign God who allowed it for his divine purposes and, and God is good. I find great comfort in God's sovereignty. All right, we'll go to some more of your guys' questions here. Um, Dakota France says, what is God's will? What is God's will? Well, I mean, obviously, Dakota, you know, you know, that's a pretty broad question. Um, there is one passage that tells us what God's will is. And it's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. I mean, there's one aspect of God's will right there is that you become sanctified or you grow in your holiness and your character of following Jesus Christ, that you're submitting more and more of your life to the Lordship of Christ, that you are growing and you abstain from sexual immorality or fill in the blank with some other sin. So a holiness in my life is God's will for sure. It's God's will. There's other things that are God's will. I mean, God wants me to um, to worship and know and love him, have have healthy, godly relationships and build a Christian brotherhood and serve him in my life, be faithful with my commitments and promises. I mean, you could fill in the blank with lots of things. But as far as what is God's will, like, should I eat this cereal or that cereal today? Or should I um, read this book or that book or go here or go there? In, in many of these cases, I think God wants you to make choices that are based on wisdom, which is why he had the book of Proverbs written. The book of Proverbs, a book of wisdom, so that we would make good choices and not always think we must have like divine direction for every decision in life. Sometimes God wants you to make a, a wise choice and you don't know what the outcome will be, but that's kind of how you grow as a person. Uh, Lisa Marie says, question, is church attendance biblically required? Are you in church membership? Um, I mean, I belong to my church. I mean, I don't think that the church, the early church in the first century, I, I, I doubt any of them had church member lists, like roles, but they had membership, meaning you belong to that body. And there was something excommunication in the biblical sense, which was you actually say you can no longer fellowship with us uh, as a temporary measure to bring correction into people's lives. And uh, so the biblical church membership is you actually belong to a local body in fellowship. You're fellowshipping with them. I think that's very important. I'm not totally opposed to the idea of church membership in a more official capacity, like where you actually have lists and you take some class or something. I think there's benefits in that. But is church attendance biblically required? Um, yeah, I think it is. I think it's biblically required. But do we do we do it as like this sort of, you know, rule where it's like every single week you have to gather on Sunday in this building. That's what church attendance is. And if you don't do it, you're in rebellion to God. Well, I think that that, de that depends on your situation. Uh, maybe you're, you're, you're an invalid and you can't leave the house physically. Okay. So church gathering to you is going to be bringing Christians to your home to minister to you and to be able to spend fellowship time with them. So you're going to gather as the church, but you, you have to bring them to you in that scenario or Right now with coronavirus, some people can't meet regularly on Sundays and we're struggling. We're struggling with a couple things. One is it's it's lame to not be able to gather. Two, it's not really healthy. Uh, it's not, not a good thing to not be able to gather in fellowship. 
it builds my faith. It builds my spiritual well-being when I go into fellowship with other believers and I am sitting in the teaching of God's word and I worship corporately. That's really important. But and three, the concern is how long is this going to go on? And at what point do Christians say at some point we say, OK, we're gathering anyways. I don't I don't think we're there right now. And I think those who have done it anyways have been have been um, in some cases reckless and dangerous. Uh, in other cases, I, I wonder, I go, well, Lord, give him wisdom. Let each church kind of make decisions. But yeah, so, you know, Hebrews tells us, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the manner of some. I To put this in another way, I don't think that that means every week you have to meet or you're forsaking the fellowship. But if you never go, and if you, you're just generally not fellowshipping with other Christians, that's radically spiritually unhealthy for you, and you can't continue doing that. You can try to fellowship digitally in some ways, and I don't just mean watching a service, but I mean in like doing Zoom or Facebook gathering with friends who are believers, building each other up in the faith. That, that can be a fellowship, an actual fellowship. Um, but will it replace physical church? I don't think so. It's more like a Band-Aid. Agape philosophy says, <clears throat> how do we know the Gospels were written by the authors Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Um, well, there's several answers to this, but I will plug. I have a video on the Gospel of Mark and Agape philosophy. I think you're going to check it out. It's the first in my Mark series going verse by verse through the whole Gospel of Mark. I'm still in the middle of teaching it. It'll probably be two weeks when I'll come out with the next one uh, in the Mark series. But the first in the series is why we should think that Mark actually wrote the Gospel of Mark, and it's a it's a it's an exhaustive study. It's very thorough, but I'll give a couple other reasons for the Gospels in general. Um, now, the the uh, the earliest copies we have have names Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John on them. They all have them. The earliest copies, and we don't have any conflicting names, right? Like on John's Gospel, it's always labeled John. On Matthew, it's always labeled Matthew. So it's early and it's consistent. The church fathers affirmed that these were the authors. The church fathers, we even have guys like Justin Martyr in the second century saying that these were the memoirs of the apostles. And um, he's referring to the gospels, but he refers he refers them as being um, memoirs of the apostles. And this helps bolster the case that they're apostolic in their origin and not coming from some fourth, four times removed source. So we have... Uh, in the Church Fathers, we have the earliest copies themselves. We have no conflict. There's no different names on different documents. You know, one time it's called Mark, one time it's called Bob. That doesn't happen. We also have the fact that these are the less important of the apostles. If you wanted to fabricate an apostolic name for a book, you would put Peter's name on it, right? You'd put Paul's name on it, but you wouldn't put Mark right? or Luke. You wouldn't put Luke's name on it. You You wouldn't put, you know... Uh, maybe Matthew, I guess, but these guys are like the less less important of the apostles. And so it just seems more accurate, more likely that they are, in fact, the people who wrote them. So there's a few of the reasons. I think the reasons against the authorship are interesting as well. You might look them up, but they'll say things like, well, they were written too late. The, the apostles would have been dead by the time these books were written. Well, that's not true. That's, I mean, it's literally not true. Not even Not even remotely true. The, the assumption a lot of times is that the lifespans of people in the first century only lived till they were like 40 and then they all died. This is not factually historically true. Humans are humans, okay? We don't just die at the age of 40. And it's one thing to live in such horrible scenario that you die a lot. But it seems that what would happen is if you did live past the age of like, say, 
15 or 12 or 10 that you would often live until old age so that you're considered an old man when you're in your 70s. And we see this in lists of Roman rulers and how old they actually were. We also see this with people like Jesus who's considered like, oh, he's 30. He's just barely 30 years old. Like that's not even a big deal for them. Well, if you died at 40, 30 would be pretty old. But for them, it wasn't. Um, and there's other reasons too that escape my mind right now. But yeah, so I would say the arguments for genuine authorship are strong. The arguments against it are weak. And that's usually why you hold it to an opinion. And uh, Taylor Atwood, have you ever had a former LDS say that only FLDS believe things like God was once a man and, and became God or all good Mormons can become a God one day? I've never had someone... Okay, so the LDS is like the Mormon church that we're all familiar with. The FLDS? Um, I forget what the F stands for. Um, I forget. Maybe you guys know in the live chat. But what I will say is we've got, um, uh, there we go. I, I will say we've got no reason to think that any branch of Mormonism won't affirm those two things, that God was once a man and became God. That's essential to Mormonism. I mean, this is like part of, okay, every Mormon group believes the book of Abraham is, in fact, like part of scripture. This is a book that um, that Joseph Smith fabricated. He, he wrote it, right? Also, the Doctrine and Covenants, the Prolegate Great Price, and the Journal of Discourses, along with the Book of Mormon. These are all scripture in Mormonism. And in there, you get that God be, God was a man, or a man-like being, and then he became God because he was exalted. He was such a good person, so he became a God. And then he had babies with his wives in heaven, and that produced us. And we were spirit children in the sky, so to speak, or you know, somewhere out there. And then we came down and decided that we would become you know, human, so that we would have a chance at living a good life and becoming a god ourselves one day. And that's the highest goal in Mormonism is you become your own god. So that's, that's like, this is like essential Mormon teaching. Now it's true that a lot of Mormons don't know this stuff because they just, they usually don't learn it until they're on their mission trip when they go, they're going door to door. And then they encounter someone like me or you and we go, hey man, you think that God used to be a man? Go, oh gosh, no, that's, that's heretical. I would never believe that. Then they go home and they're living with their sponsors and their sponsors like well actually yes we do believe that and they're like what and this is when the real indoctrination takes place for the mormon it's on their mission trip so usually the missionaries are the least informed mormons on their journey to learning what they believe while they try and tell other people it's true daniel james says please expound on the question on the biblical practice of worship um how do we yield our bodies to god for he hears a worshiper John 9 31 thanks I'm not sure if I understand the question uh, entirely but it does relate to Romans 12 which you mentioned here in parentheses I didn't read it but you mentioned Romans 12 1 and let me talk about how this relates to worship I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship um, this this idea of worship here is not singing, which is what we usually associate with worship. I mean, that is worship. That is worship. Biblically, singing is an act of worship. But Paul is asking us to do something that is much beyond that, way more than just singing. Singing is what I do as an overflow of this other thing that I need to do if I'm going to worship God, which is 
to give my body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Like that itself is an act of worship. So when I present my life to the Lord and I say, I'm going to live for you, that is an act of worship. So the way I, I treat my spouse, the way that I, I manage my time because I'm a Christian and I change the way I'm going to do whatever about my schedule, like that is an act of worship to God. And this, this phrase, living sacrifice, well, uh, normally a, a body, like of an animal, would be presented to God as a, as a dead sacrifice. It, like you offer it to him, it, it's it's burned or, or they would do different things with it. And that's like offered to God. But in this case, it's saying, okay, look, Jesus is the actual sacrifice. But in light of Christ, in light of God's mercy, live for him. Don't just die for him. Live for him. Your daily life. It's a good encouragement. And that is an actual act of worship. So worship is something that flows from all of our lives to God. It is not just something we do in prayer. It's not just something we do in music. It's a way you, it's a lifestyle of living for him. And then the acts of worship and singing are just an overflow of that. I've long had a theory that people's experience when they worship on say Sunday morning, they gather together and they sing that that expression of worship is related to whether or not they, they gave their bodies to the Lord throughout the week. Um, now, there's other issues there too. But when people make it about, well, I don't like singing or I like this music, not that music, I just feel like they don't get it. Like they don't understand what, what, what is going on here. Uh, Randy Bennett says, Thoughts on Judges 19. I've never heard this story in a sermon. Why isn't the story of the Levite and the concubine mentioned in sermons? Do you think the sin in this chapter is adultery or idolatry? Okay, so Judges 19 is is a... Actually, the whole ending of the book of Judges, I mean like the last third of the book of Judges, is a bunch of stories where there's like no good guys in sight. It's like everybody involved is a sinner and they're all failing and falling short. And may I say that's the point. That's the point in Judges. Even... Even the the deliverers like Samson fall short and fail epically. The point is, it's showing us the sinfulness of man so that we might see our need for the Savior Jesus. We won't get there through, through our obedience. We'll get there through his salvation that he offers us. But in this passage of Judges 19, there's, um, there's a really like R-rated story, which might be one reason why you're not hearing it that much in sermons. I'll say this though, Randy, I've taught through judges and I've taught this passage. I've mentioned it more than once in my own studies. I don't, I don't know if you should take your experience of not hearing it and think that that relates to the whole church worldwide. I would just say, consider that it may only be your experience or in certain circles. Um, let's see. The, I'm trying to think if I should summarize this chapter. It's pretty long. And I don't really want to read the whole thing because of the sake of time. We're already an hour in. So uh, the Levite and his concubine. Um, the basic story is um, this guy has a, a, a concubine already wrong. He has a concubine, which means she's not really his wife, his full-fledged wife. Um, she's like a second status wife. Maybe so he could produce more offspring or something like that. So we have sin and wickedness involved already. And then they go traveling and... He comes to get her. She stays with her dad. She leaves him and stays with her dad. And then he goes to get her back. And the dad's like, I'll get you drunk and I'll try to get you to stay. And he's trying to like manipulate him. And, and so then the guy eventually leaves. He finally leaves. So the guy, the dad is, is acting sinfully. Then they finally leave and they decide to stay in this town. Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the town they stay in. Uh, Gibeah. So they turn right aside and they stay at Gibeah. And Gibeah, which is a Jewish town, they mistreat the woman and 
she ends up dying. They they rape and she ends up dying. She's horribly mistreated, and the man is is um, gives into this. Like he doesn't fight it like he should. Well, then he decides to cut her body up and send it across Israel. And this is the part that freaks people out the most. It shouldn't be. The part should be all the stuff that's already happened. But he sends the, the body parts across Israel as a way of basically saying, look, here's the proof. Look at what Gibeah did to, to my, my concubine. And then they come and they slaughter the Benjamites. They just kill tons of them. So it's just a mass massacre that happens as a result of this. Then the Benjamites are like, gosh, we have no wives. So then they go like steal wives from other people. What's the point? The whole point is how horribly sinful mankind becomes when they just do their own thing and they're not following what God has commanded. It's showing the depravity of man. So it may not be the kind of uh, passage that people often want to run to to teach their sermons, but it's, it is the reality of mankind. Mankind is, like, is wicked. We're wicked. And cultures can move into places of wickedness you never thought were possible. And this is what happens in our culture. And it's happening even right now in our culture. The depravity in our culture is continuing to slide downhill such that we would see more and more of things that, that should shock us and disturb us. And we'll see these as more common. And that, that's, that's the story. Is like, This is man doing his own thing. The book of Judges is a moral downward slide of Israel throughout the whole book. And here you are, you get towards the latter part of the book of Judges and it just gets worse and worse. So yeah, that, that would be my, my thought on, on Judges uh, 19. Do I think it's about idolatry or adultery? I, I think it's about all of the above. I, don't, I wouldn't say it's only about one sin. I would, I would look at all the sins in there and say it, they're all there. It shows the depravity of a culture gone wicked uh, who then decides to be wicked even in response to wickedness so that nothing is right. Um, I think I'm, what I'm going to do is call it um, call it a night for now. I'll, I'll do one more question for you guys and then we'll call it a night. Uh, Brian Harper says, many of the faith's forefathers in the Old Testament had multiple wives. Was this wrong at the time or is this something that was okay then but not okay now? I think it was wrong at the time and, and I think it's wrong now. And we don't see the prohibition in the Bible against polygamy early on. Well, we sort of do. In the Old Testament, we see specifically with kings, they're told not to have multiple wives, not to multiply wives. Okay, so there's that with kings in particular. Now, if kings are like an ideal person, then there's an ideal that's there that's being expressed. I think, though, that what we do see with issues related to polygamy in the, in the Old Testament law is the protection of the women who were involved. That's what we see. Like you can't, if you do take another wife, you can't lessen the provisions and the rights of the previous wife. So that there's like this, basically God's like, you're going to do this anyways. I'm going to protect people from being vilified more or victimized more as you do it. I think that's what happens. Jesus kind of made this clear when he talked about uh, why Moses allowed for divorce. Divorce shouldn't, ideally should never happen, but because men are wicked, God has these allowances for it in the Old Testament. And Jesus even has at least one. And we, um, we see the reason why. He says, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses wrote, uh, told you to provide certificates of divorce. Because of the wickedness of man, and God deals with man really in his actual wickedness, in the scenarios of messed up life that we're in, uh, we see that there. But the ideal is established in Genesis. Genesis, and that's what Jesus appeals to when he pushes monogamy. He says, God created the male and female, right? And the, the two become one flesh, as you read what Christ wrote about or spoke about in the Gospels. 
so that that affirms monogamy. Uh, yeah. So I think that answers your question. I hope so. I hope you guys are doing well. With, um, with all these questions, I, I think they're good. I think they're healthy. I think it's smart to have questions. But I want to ask you guys this. You, here, my audience, you are often those who are asking rough questions and tough questions about the Bible. And you're looking for good answers, and that's healthy. But sometimes the Bible becomes to you only a source of answering hard questions and not the guide and the spiritual cleanliness of your life that it's meant to be. You just look at it as a trivia book sometimes. And that can be a problem you fall into when you start going into the Bible as though all it's there for is for you to poke at it and see if it can answer that riddle or this riddle. And there's, there's a time for that. I think there's a healthy time for that. But read the word and just let it, let it sanctify you. Let it bring you comfort. Let it bring you encouragement. God has revealed himself to us in the person of Christ and he has spoken to us in the written word of the scripture. And he's done this for our own benefit and good. And if you get too caught up trying to solve riddles all the time, you may forget that it's the will of God for your sanctification or that you are to present your body as a living sacrifice unto the Lord or you to rejoice always. You may forget the comfort of the Psalms and you may forget the, the calling to holiness of the, of the New Testament or, or any other number of things, how it actually applies into your marriage because you're more thinking about issues of polygamy, which, which are important. I, I grant you that, but they don't really apply to you that much, do they? What applies more is your calling as a husband, your calling as a wife, or your calling as a single person. So I hope that that encouragement helps you guys. And I hope that you have a wonderful day. Uh, this Sunday, I'll be doing another live stream. At least that's my intention. Uh, assuming the live streaming live streaming is really weird on YouTube right now. Assuming that I can get it to work properly. This Sunday, I'll do a live stream on for my Sunday night service on, um, on Jesus and the Passover, how Jesus fulfilled the Passover. I think I have 24 ways in which Jesus fulfilled the Passover. I spent a lot of time on this, and I hope that you find it very beneficial and edifying. And then the following week, we'll, we'll get back into the Gospel of Mark, or so is my intention. All right, Lord bless you. Have a great day.